All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you uh, very much for coming out. Uh, three more after this, three more after this. Um, tonight, the scientific revolution. What is this science thing? And I think one of the most misunderstood elements of uh, philosophical, intellectual, and cultural history, actually, is what exactly the scientific revolution means. What it's up to, why it exists, how it relates to philosophy. And I think this is odd because two reasons. One, the scientific revolution, hugely important, right? This is not like a minor occurrence in the history of the world. It's a major occurrence in the history of the world, uh, which we live in. I mean, we are, again, like the Enlightenment, we're the children of the scientific revolution. It is what we think. It is the philosophy we have, whether we know it or not. And uh, second, people seem to have forgotten that this is a philosophical breakthrough. And so I think this is one reason people get confused about what science is and how it works and what it's supposed to be doing. And I hope to sort of elucidate both what it is and then some of the confusions we have around it where that people make errors in thinking about what science is doing, what it's supposed to do, how it functions. And again, it's because we've forgotten that it is a philosophical revolution and the nature of that revolution. So what I want to do is make a pitch to you that to understand science, what you want to think of is empiricism industrialized. So you have a philosophical development, empiricism, that meets the industrial revolution. And what science is, is you take the philosophical breakthrough of empiricism, which you get in the Enlightenment, Hume, Locke, it pre predates that, but I mean, it really starts to come to the fore in the Enlightenment. Um, and then you just give it industrial structure, uh, which, we'll, which we'll talk about that is combined makes the scientific revolution, which we live in, and completely alters the course of history, 100% totally, one of the most important revolutions in the history of mankind, but without shooting people. This is one of those great revolutions where people didn't get shot. I'm really pro the not shooting people revolutions. And so historically speaking, it's been a titanic shift in how we live and think and view the world without a lot of people being shot, which is, again, historically speaking, incredibly rare. And so I'm very pro the scientific revolution, just if for no other reason, for that purpose alone. So first, where does this begin? Ah, again, origins, take your pick. Uh, you know, turtles all the way down. But if, if, if one place to start is Francis Bacon. Uh, common choice, so we'll just go with Francis Bacon. You could choose people a little earlier. Like I said, I mentioned Da Vinci in the Renaissance. He was definitely pushing empiricism without having that concept in his mind. Uh, but if you look at Francis Bacon, he is one of the early proponents of sort of experimental knowledge, which comes to be called empiricism. So, but, but he really pushed it, particularly in his Novum Organum, uh, which is just sort of new systems, new thinking, new ways. Um, and so here's the quote uh, it's from, from the Novum Organum, um, 1620, by the way. Now, my method, though hard to practice, is easy to explain, and it is this. I propose to establish progressive stages of certainty. Notice that, progressive stages of certainty. The evidence of the sense, helped and guarded by certain processes of correction, I retain. But the mental operation which follows the act of sense, I, for the most part, reject. And instead of it, I open and lay out a new and certain path for the mind to proceed in starting directly from simple sensuous perception. So empiricism is generally understood uh, as the notion that your sense perception is the origin of all knowledge. Now, if you've ever studied philosophical history, this is one of the easiest philosophical ideas to attack. And it has been roundly attacked for several hundred years, but it doesn't matter because what empiricism is doing is shifting the ground of knowledge. And what Bacon is there is saying, look, sense perception, but not just sense perception. Certain, I'll, I'll have certain processes to correct and verify. And this is experimentation. This is duplication. This is application of logic. This is repetition. All of these elements he's starting to develop and think about and reflect on. So that is not just your sensual perception of the world, but that is always the foundation. And keep that in mind. Your understanding and direct experience of the world is where knowledge comes from. Now, Hume and Locke were two of your big empiricists in the Enlightenment 
both pointed out that there's all these problems with sense perception. You make errors, you do, and so you, you're never going to get to the big T truth. You're not going to get to transcendental certitude. And in the history of philosophy, this is what had been argued. Aristotle is you get it with logic. Plato is you get it from divine inspiration. Uh, the Christian thinkers, you get it from God in various manifestations. At the Arabic thinkers, you get it from God, you know, if, if you're coming from Allah. Um, other places, you know, inspiration, contact with the divine earth, um, interface with the spirits, all these sources that you could go to, different philosophical schools in different countries argued in different ways, that's how you arrive at big T transcendental truth. But empiricism is not interested in that. Empiricism is essentially interested in big F truth, and big F truth is functional. Does it work? Does it actually achieve more or less what you're trying to achieve? If yes, eh, true enough. Fine. And so all the critiques of empiricism say, oh, well, that fails. It's not logically coherent. That's fine. It works functionally. And it throws off uh, schools of thought like pragmatism, William James, American philosopher, sometimes basically our only American first-rate philosopher, maybe him and Emerson, but one of our great philosophers, certainly William James, he was a big proponent of pragmatism, which is sort of empiricism uh, gone, gone wild, you know, and it was this idea that if it works, it's right enough. Not perfect, not eternally true, not true in all universes under all conditions, but pretty damn good. <laughs> and so you can't, and so this is a very frustrating when people try to critique empiricism, as we'll see, because empiricism doesn't care if you prove that it's not universally true. It's like, well, okay, sure, sure enough. So people know the white swan, black swan thing. So, so generally you assume that all swans are white because you only see white swans. And so you induce the inductive method that all swans are white. Well, and then all of a sudden you see a black swan. Everybody goes, oh, your universal truth that you induced is inaccurate. And empiricism says, that's okay. Now we know there's also black swans, but mostly the swans are white that we see, and that's good enough. <clears throat> so induction, which is the core of empiricism, says you have to be logically coherent, but you also have to make leaps. You have to go, well, we've not seen all the swans in the world, but we're gonna go with, they're mostly white. And then when you see a black swan, transcendental truth people say, oh my gosh, your theory has collapsed. Empiricists say, no, it's just been slightly flawed, and now we'll say mostly white, occasionally black, if you're in other parts of the world. Um, one of my favorite quotes is, uh, and I can't remember the astronomer's name, and he said, look, I cannot prove that there is not a jar of mayonnaise in orbit around Uranus. Can't prove it. But I'm gonna go that it's not there. I'm just gonna throw that out there as an induction. Now, if we find a jar of mayonnaise, orbiting Uranus, that will be an incredible, mind-blowing breakthrough. <laughs> right, that mayonnaise is transplanetary would be like the most amazing thing. Uh, but, but you know, that, that this, this, but, but that, you know, sort of, it, but it, it's good enough. We're just gonna go with it. We're just gonna assume there's no mayonnaise out there until we're proven otherwise, and that's fine. That's good enough. Um, and so this is the inductive method of experimentation and reliance on sense perception that is the foundation of empiricism. Um, and so ex as an example of the kind of critiques this is always put to, here uh, in Bertrand Russell's History of Philosophy, he has this. He says, empiricism and idealism alike are faced with a problem to which so far philosophy has no, found no satisfactory answer. This is the problem of showing how we have knowledge of other things than ourselves and the operation of our own mind. So they say, you know, if you only allow sense perception, then the only thing you could have knowledge of is what you know directly and what happens in your own mind. And wow, that's an incredibly limited take on the world. But what the counter argument from empiricism is like, A, okay, and B, no, it, you have an imperfect knowledge of the world. But that's fine. We're not claiming perfect knowledge. We're claiming imperfect knowledge. We're just saying we've got a pretty good idea of the world, 
But if our sense perceptions are wrong, and when we check them and cross-check them, they're still wrong, well, then we're wrong, and that's about as good as you can get. And so, as we'll see, a lot of the critiques of science are just pointless because science doesn't make much claims beyond that. It just turns out that's a really effective claim, but it's not transcendental, it's not universal. Another thing we misunderstand about scientific revolution is, is that uh, experimentation technology does not require science. So famously, James Watt uh, more or less perfected the steam engine to a certain degree. He got a really good steam engine by 1790. I mean, by, by this point, he's, he's made a series of significant improvements on his original steam engine, which was then copied from somebody else's steam engine. And he's got a, I mean, a masterfully um, efficient, beautiful steam engine running that's going to revolutionize power, delivery, and transportation, and everything else. Um, and this is about a hundred-ish years, give or take, before a good theory of kinetic uh, gases is developed by, by Boltzmann um, and uh, Maxwell, right? Maxwell and Boltzmann. So the theory, the kinetic theory of gases, is a ways off. I mean, they sort of had Boyle's Law, but it's not very good uh, for this sort of application. So you don't need the scientific overhead to do technological development. This is what people get, get confused about. All kinds of technology is developed by people who have little or no understanding of the underlying science. It's not necessary. And so if you look at the history leading up to the scientific revolution, what you have is all kinds of important technological breakthroughs. Moving press developed in China. In fact, China developed everything, basically. All kinds of metallurgy, gunpowder, uh, foundry technology, printing press, uh, just the list goes on and on and on and on and on. Why didn't they have a scientific revolution? Same thing, the, uh, talk about the Arabic golden age, the Islamic golden age, where you have this learning, optics, figuring out how the eye works, all this, they had it all. And people look at, look, they had the technology to develop it. Why no scientific revolution? Why? Because they did not have an industrial revolution. All this empirical experimentation, all of these isolated uh, technological improvements cannot be industrialized if you don't have industrialization. That's what science is. So, so, so here's an example. I've, I was trying to look for this, and I found a great quote. It's one of those quotes you find, you're like, oh, thank you. Makes my lecture easy. Uh, and, and this is the guy who developed the first chemical base to dye, which was Perkins. And it was um, uh, mauveine, it was called. It was a sort of bright mauve color. And it was the first really chemical industrial dye. Now, this doesn't seem like a big deal to us, but historically, dyeing clothes was really hard. And, and, and getting fast color, which of course is attractive and people value, was not very well understood, very time consuming when you could do it, and incredibly expensive. So Perkins sort of accidentally was running these experiments and developed mauveine. But here's the thing. Having invented the dye about 1856, Perkins was still faced with the problem of raising the capital for producing it, manufacturing it cheaply, adapting it for use in dyeing cotton, gaining acceptance for it among commercial dyers, and creating public demand for it. He was active in all these areas. He persuaded his father to put up the capital and his brothers to partner with him to build a factory. He invented a mordant for cotton, which allows it to bind. He gave technical advice to the dyeing industry, and he publicized his invention of the dye. You, you make the technological breakthrough. It happened all through the world, everywhere in the world, through all kinds of times. Ah, but nowhere else in history did you have access to capital, industrial capacity, the means of publicizing, being able to work directly with producers, the freedom to go out and develop something that you could then market to consumers. It's not until the Industrial Revolution that all of those next steps take place. And, and the counterexample I wanted to give um, was people know that the Chinese, heard of the Chinese treasure fleets? So for about 30-ish years, from about 1405 to 1433, the Ming uh, government sent out massive, I mean, unimaginably large treasure fleets. I mean, just thousands and thousands of sailors on these junks that were five or six or 10 times the size of any ship that the European country could put on the water, filled 
with every kind of treasure and, and trade good. And they sent it around the Indian Ocean and other places to just sort of wave the flag and say, oh, by the way, we're the Chinese. The Ming emperor is your boss, so just don't get any crazy ideas. You know, so, and you have to imagine that it's you know, 1420. The biggest boat you've ever seen holds 20 people or 40 people, maybe 100 people, which would be huge. And a junk the size of a small aircraft carrier with 5,000 sailors on board and 300 other craft pulls into your harbor. Your first thought is, well, we're about to get invaded. And then when they don't invade, your second thought was, well, that was great, and we better do what these people say. Because, wow, they're way, right? So these huge fleets went out. And then the Chinese government said, no, no more of that. We're not doing that anymore. We're just going to leave those ships to rot. We don't do that. And there are several reasons for this. One, they weren't trade missions. They weren't trying to do business. And so they cost money. They did not make money. Two, any sort of trade or merchant activity made you low class in the Confucius system. So the government was always suspicious of traders and merchants. Uh, and three, there's an internal power struggle in the palace, basically, oversimplifying, between the eunuchs and the Confucius mandrinate. Uh, and the Confucius mandrinate doesn't want anything to do with the outside world because China is self-sustaining, which it was. It did not need to go out. And so why? We have everything we need. And uh, to varying degrees, many of the court eunuchs are like, no, this is a good idea. We should do it intellectual development, reach out, you know, expand the Chinese empire, all those sorts of soft power arguments. But nobody was making the arguments of, oh, let's expand trade and develop knowledge and make money. All of which seemed perfectly like, why would you send boats out? We think, oh, you send boats out to do trade, make money, expand knowledge, or do research. No, that's because we're children of the scientific revolution. They didn't have that outlook. And so what was going out in the world, what they were making discoveries, they were sort of reaching out, they could have done all this trade. They're like, man, we're indifferent to all that. We don't care. And so you couldn't raise capital for this. You couldn't make all these experiments and inventions happen because their infrastructure wasn't there. Flip it around the other way. What if there is the infrastructure there? This is where it gets really interesting. So what people like Perkins and Watt and thousands of others discovered is if you develop a dye and you get it to market, you can make a lot of money. I mean, a lot of money. And so people start not just investing in this, but actually investing directly in research. We're just going to hire some people. Perkins developed a dye. He's making a fortune. Why can't we make a fortune developing a dye? What do we need? Well, we need chemists. Where are we going to get chemists? I don't know. Let's go to Scotland. They've got good universities. You don't go to Oxford and Cambridge for chemists. You go to Scotland. Um, or you go to France. Or you go to Germany. And you start endowing the colleges and universities and saying, hey, we need chemists. And they're like, well, we don't really have chemists. We'll make some chemists, all right? So we'll do, we'll do chemistry departments. OK, now we've got chemistry labs and chemistry departments. And now industry starts developing research laboratories. So but people know Thomas Edison. Everybody says Thomas Edison was a great inventor. He was a pretty good inventor, no, no, no fault there. What he really invented was the research laboratory. Now that's genius. He had some good inventions and he realized, I'm one guy, I can only invent so much, but if I hire a couple of hundred other guys, mostly men by the way, unfortunately, if I hire a bunch of other smart people and put them to work, we can invent a lot of stuff. So his whole business was just to create things. That is empiricism industrialized. So science gets this huge push because you start getting professional researchers. Why do you want to learn about chemistry? A, because chemistry is interesting in itself, and B, because it can be applied to solve real-world problems. And by problems, I mean things like, wow, we don't have a beautiful blue. And the world would be better if we had a beautiful blue. Or we want to have anesthesia for patients so they don't die, or they don't suffer pain, or all these things. And so they just looked around the world, and they said, if you can solve a problem, you can make a lot of money. 
This is the scientific revolution. Thousands and thousands of people dedicating their lives to doing research in the hopes of making a breakthrough. Not a guarantee. This is all very risky. But with the hopes that you make a breakthrough, and that breakthrough can have a humanitarian use, can be financially beneficial, can add to the sum total of human knowledge, can make a difference. That's unprecedented by world history. Because this is where we've lost track of the change. Should you try to improve the world, is the world improvable? Now, if you believe in the fallen man, the original sin, no. God made the world the way the world's supposed to be, and if you go mucking about in it, you're only going to make it worse because you're damaged and ignorant. Two, where does truth come from? Ah, here's the real thing. If truth comes from a laboratory, what if the laboratory comes back and says, oh, something that you've generally believed is false? The Earth might actually be going around the sun, says the crazy guy Copernicus. Now, this doesn't bother us so much today, but if you have your authority is vested on the point that the Earth does not go around the sun, you're not interested in hearing this. In fact, you're very, very interested in not hearing it and getting rid of Copernicus, who, who did not put this out until after his death, uh, so that makes it safe. Um, but, you know, that sort of press, so that's a battle. Every time somebody gains knowledge and the opportunity to push that knowledge forward is true, it threatens somebody else's authority. We're so used to technology and science being around to challenge everything that we're just like, you know, we call it disruptive today. But even today, we still struggle with this. We'll talk about the ways. But that is the impulse. So if you look at other places of history, Chinese developed movable type, but it never takes off. Why? Because the emperor and the imperial system and the Confucius scholars wanted to keep a monopoly on it. They didn't want anybody and everybody to be able to just print whatever they wanted. Because if that happens, well, two things. The first thing you print if you get a printing press is the king, the duke, the pope, the whomever sucks. This is this just like the first thing. It really, I'm, the history of the printing press. And the second thing you print is pornography, just so you know. I'm not making this up. This is the history of the printing press. Well, we haven't changed. In case you're wondering, people say, oh, the internet's nothing but radical politics and sex. And it's like, yeah, it's a printing press right there. You know, first thing, bang, bang, bang. So it, the censors, all of those people, they were right. They, they're not wrong. They knew what people were going to do with this technology because that's what they did with the technology way back then. It's not us. It's, it goes all the way back. Um, and so they weren't wrong about what was going to be used for. The difference was the Chinese government had the capacity to enforce it. In fact, one of my favorite examples is the Chinese government was the first to have widely circulated paper money because they said no one's going to take paper money, right? Fiat currency, what a crazy idea. Except the Chinese government put on there, you have to take this currency under pain of death. And it turns out that people will take that as currency <laughs> when you know the government will enforce it. And they could enforce it. And so I was like, yeah, I'll take that, because if I don't, they'll kill me. Done. Instant paper currency. What a great deal. But that kind of capacity also means the ability to say things like, no, you can't publish that. In fact, you can't print that. In fact, you can't have a printing press. In Europe, they're always banning everything. And so you just went to the other country. So in France, you went to the Holland and printed stuff to take back to France. And if you were in Holland, you went to France to print stuff to take back to Holland, right? You just went to wherever they didn't like where you were from, and they would let you print whatever you wanted and smuggle it back. So everybody just went to the enemy country and smuggled the other thing, the other. So it was basically freedom of the press, but in a really weird way. Uh, and, and so that technology had this huge impulse because there was this opportunity to print crazy stuff that people wanted to read, and you could make money at it. And so it spread rapidly. But if any government had been strong enough in Europe to control the printing press, it would not have happened. It would have been stopped the next day because they knew what was going on. They just couldn't figure out how to stop it. Because again, people just went across borders and smuggled everything every which direction. So they're constantly burning books and banning books. And, but it didn't really have that much of an impact. 
other places they could control it. Uh, and again, every time you get a scientific breakthrough, it probably is going to upset somebody. This, this, is, this is what, you know, it's, it's weird for us to think about it because, again, we're so used to the notion, oh, this must be good. But think about right now, we're in the technological transition from uh, basically fossil fuels to re renewable energy. Look at the battle that's going on here. The battle is because, not because it's not a technological battle, now we're pretty much good with the technology. We've got it. Implementing it is a question. How you implement it, that's a problem. Also, if you happen to be a fossil fuel company, you're not that interested in renewable energy. And so why, they don't want you to just walk away with, they're not just go, oh, okay, this is a better deal, great, that's fine, we'll just forget that billions and billions of dollars we've invested in the fossil fuel infrastructure, we're good, call it a day. No, no, they're not saying this in any way. The difference is, in, in 1600, development lost the battle almost every single time. Today, the resistance to development loses the battle almost every single time. That the scientific revolution is that just endless push, even against authority, even against power, uh, that just says, look, this is a better, and it works. So the argument for solar panels is that they work. Why are people putting solar panels on their houses? Because they work. It's not an environmental argument, because people have been making the environmental argument for 30 or 40 years. Why are they installing them now? Because they really work now. Wind power, why do people doing wind power now? Because it really works now. Before, it didn't work that well. Why are people buying Teslas, electric cars now? Because they're nice. Before they weren't that nice, so people didn't buy them. Empiricism. You can make the philosophical arguments, you can make the environmental arguments, you can do all this stuff, that's all nice. Empiricism does not care. Empiricism's first and last question is, does it work? If yes, good. If no, bad. And th but this is, again, really challenging. And it's why we misunderstand how science works. So people say, oh, Einstein's theories overturned Newton's theories. Yeah, yes and no. But they say, well, Newton was wrong. Yeah, his conception of the universe was wrong, but his equations work, so we still use them. Because really, science doesn't care about its conception of the universe. I mean, it's kind of vaguely interesting. But if you throw a ball, it goes in an arc, as described by Newton. He got it right. The fact that he misunderstood the nature of the universe is completely indifferent to science. Now, Einstein is much more accurate. And if you're throwing a baseball very fast in a strong gravitational field, you're going to need Einstein. If not, Newton's your man. <laughs> right? So th there you go. I mean, it's just that simple. Um, and, and so science just doesn't care. And so people are always pointing out, uh, like, people argue against Darwin. And here's another example. The religious resistance in the United States, by the way, almost solely in the United States, to, to the teachings of Darwin, the ideas of Darwin, are based on the fact that they don't like them, that they're uncomfortable with Darwin's teaching, to which empiricism says we don't care. Your comfort is not like one of the key elements in arbitrary truth. They just don't. Um, and people sort of try to keep poking holes in Darwin, which is sort of hopeless because it turns out to be a very well-grounded theory. But again, it doesn't even matter. Does it have great explicative power? Yes. Does it have huge predictive power? Yes. Does it help further discoveries? Yes. So really, science actually doesn't care whether or not it's proven to be transcendentally true. It does everything empirically that you need a, a concept to do to make it valuable, in fact, to make it hugely unimaginably valuable. And if tomorrow we had like the Einstein equivalent to Newton, where like some incredibly complex deep structure said, oh, well, there's this cases where if you accelerate evolution to the near the speed of light in a strong gravitational field, monkeys become zebras. And you go, wow, okay, that doesn't work with Darwin. We would go, yeah, that's fine, but still Darwin works fine for every place else, so we're just going to go with Darwin. Because you don't need it to. People keep saying, oh, science is universally true. And so, everybody says that except for science, because science doesn't care. It's, it's this weird mistake on what science is trying to do. It doesn't need it to be universally true. It just needs, you know, people say, I don't believe in evolution. I say, great, does your microwave pop popcorn? Yes. Well, you believe in evolution. Because that is the scientific construct. Now, if it doesn't, then something has gone wrong in our conception, and then maybe evolution isn't true. But otherwise, you're just stuck with it. Because it's the same system. It's all these ideas interrelated. And so 
When this gets industrialized, this whole new power structure comes into place. And people keep talking about, oh, corporations and industry is too powerful. Well, it's certainly very powerful, and it's really powerful because they have the scientists. The Industrial Revolution is a scientific revolution. Uh, in, in the world every year now, more than a trillion dollars is spent on R&D, and almost all of that is spent either by industry or sort of indirectly by industry. Governments spend a fair bit, but it's mostly industrial research. It's companies, corporations. Uh, this is an unimaginably vast amount of money on people doing crazy stuff. And people always say, oh, they're doing this crazy research. Why are they wasting money on it? Why are they doing Well, it's because maybe, just maybe, you'll do something that allows you to, you know, come up with a new silicon chip. I mean, when they invented the first silicon chip, the first switching little resistor guy, what do they call that stupid thing? Uh, transistor, thank you, the transistor. One of the comments was, hey, we, we won a Nobel Prize for it, but it's the most useless thing we've ever come up with. This was their observation. This is totally useless. It's cool and interesting, but useless. It turned out to be slightly less than useless. Right? The transistor turns out to be a good invention. Um, you know, and you just go, there you go. Nobody knows what this stuff is going to be good for. But what we've developed is a faith, a belief, that if enough people invest enough money, something good will probably come out of it. And good stuff comes out regularly enough that the whole thing keeps functioning. If science stops making breakthroughs, basically the industry would collapse. It, the Industrial Revolution would be over. The, the, the Information Technology Revolution would be over. And people keep saying, oh, it's the end of science. Oh, there's nothing more to discover. Oh, well, it's just nonsense. <laughs> it's just crazy. You'll know when that day comes when the entire global economy grinds to a halt. Until then, it's probably people keep saying, oh, doom, we're going to run out of resources. No. The most important resource we've had, and the most important resource we've had for about the last 400 years is simply human ingenuity. That's the only resource that we are in danger of running out of, and it doesn't seem like we're going to run out of it anytime soon, because of the scientific revolution, the industrialization of empirical thinking. And that's why corporations have so much power. But where did the power come from? It didn't come from no place. It came from political authorities, social authorities, and religious institutions. It's just that simple. It's a transfer of power. They haven't created more power or new power. It's just power that was traditionally held by these other social institutions has been transferred to the evil merchants that all of the political and philosophical systems had always warned everybody about. And they were right. Don't trust the merchants, except for they are wrong because it's also great, right? So it's that all their fear of the merchants, they're going to take the money, they're going to use it for base things, they're going to change everything, they're going to disrupt our lives. We don't trust them. And we don't trust them either, but we love them, right? Because we love all the goods that this industrialization of empirical research has delivered to our lives. At the same time, we struggle with it because it is a revolution. So many certainties have been torn away from us. The Earth is the center of the universe, not really. Okay, we orbit the sun. Oh, and the sun's hurtling through the universe at incredible speed. Just, just a few revolutions here. In the last 100 years, one, the universe is expanding. I mean, that is a titanic intellectual breakthrough. Plate tectonics, this is only pretty much proven out in the 1960s. The whole notion that the world is just floating around, which is just hard to conceptualize, right? It makes no sense. But the whole planet is just floating about. So, I, ooh, that's only been around for about 50, 60 years. And uh, the whole theories of global warming, by the way, people are like, oh, you know, we got to respond faster. In a way, I think it's pretty impressive. In under 40 years, we've all got any concept. Historically speaking, we don't change very fast. That we're even thinking about maybe addressing global warming in this time frame is pretty good. Because it's so abstract, and we're really hard. We struggle with that. 
So, you know, it, it, it's kind of impressive. So, but all these theories, man, and they've been revolutionizing the way we view the world, but we doesn't seem to bother us. We're used to it now. We're like, oh, okay. Another one of my favorite ones is now basically the medical research was, uh, is saying, look, you know, death is sort of a, is a design flaw, and we're working on it. <laughs> it this is a totally radical reconceptualization of the human condition to think that, oh, that might be fixable. Now, it might not be fixable, but people are working on fixing it. That's amazing. You know, they used to have the mirror of the philosopher's stone, live immortal life, the elixir, whatever. No, they're actually like, no, I think we could pull that off. But millions, hundreds of millions of dollars are being spent on this project. Now, whether it'll work, nobody knows. But that's the, that's the method. Life extension, immortality. Can we transfer our brains into computers? No, that's a terrible idea. Unless we can do it. <laughs> right? I mean, this is, nobody knows. That's the magic of it. Um, and, and if you look around, I was trying to think of examples of how this works. Um, scientific theories are right until they're wrong, and they're wrong when they don't explain what's happening. And this is different from every other kind of theory. It used to be the Pope is right until you get an army that overthrows him. <laughs> That's the War of the Reformation. It took a bunch of kings and a lot of people and a lot of death for the Pope to not be right within a certain geographical range. But he was right in a lot of other places. And the scientific revolution is like, so the example I like is cold fusion. About every 10 years, some, some nutty scientists announce cold fusion, that they can do fusion at close to room temperature, which would be a violation of all the physical laws we know. Um, but people are always interested. Scientists go, well, that's totally impossible unless they're doing it. And this is back to Bacon. If you can verify that they've done it, reproduce it a couple of times and test it in different locations, then it turns out they're right and all of your theories are wrong. And people go, oh, okay. And immediately people would be like, wow, that's crazy. We've got to rethink stuff. Because somebody's done it. Uh, one example that we're living with now is they discovered not too long ago, about 20 years, that the universe is expanding, right? So it, under the old model is you have an explosion, the Big Bang, and as the universe expands, it should be slowing down because it's burning out of energy. Gravity is slowing down the expansion. Okay, makes perfect sense. And we have beautiful physical models and astronomical models that explain all this, heavily tested. And then they found out that not only is the universe still expanding, it's expanding at an increasing rate. Now that is wrong <laughs> until it was verified every time they tested it. And so what they had to do is throw out a lot of the theories because they didn't line up with the observation. And that is the change. That's the empirical change. It's not a logical question because it makes no sense. It's totally illogical for the universe to be expanding faster than it used to be. That's just stupid. How, what's making it expand faster? So they came with this stuff called dark energy, by the way, which is to say, well, there must be something that's making that happen. Let's call it dark energy. So that's a category that explains something that's not explained. It's really not an explanation. Notice this. It's like, uh, there's a blank space, so we'll call the blank space dark energy. Ha, there we go. Um, and it has all of the capacities and, and, and aspects that you need to explain what we've observed. So it, it's totally a backwards fit. So they have no idea what's going on yet. Hopefully we'll find out. But... Yeah, we don't know. But historically speaking, if you said, look, you're wrong about that, it was a question of authority. Do the Greeks have authority? Do we have a Roman authority? Do we have a church authority? Do we have a political authority? The, the president will tell you what's right. The king will tell you what's right. The pope will tell you what's right and what's wrong. The religious leader will tell you. The mullah will tell you if that's right or wrong. And it was, it was a question of vested social authorities. In empiricism, it's like, did it fly? If you wanted it to fly and it flew, that was right. If you wanted it to fly and it didn't fly, you were wrong. And you just have to go back and fix it. And that sort of transfer authority to a natural process and to a test is what Bacon was talking about all those years ago. He just never saw it being massively industrialized. 
But notice it also has several other things. It shifts power not just to corporations, although really does that. It also shifts power to institutions of education and to individuals who have particular kinds of education. And the logical extension of this is Silicon Valley. People go, oh, where did Silicon Valley come from, this sort of eruption? Well, it came from, from researchers from the East Coast who said, you know what, we develop everything, we should get more money. And the companies they were working in said, no, you're researchers, we're business people. The business people sit on the boards, make the decisions, and get the money. And so they said, bye, we're going to go someplace new. We're going to go to the West Coast, and we're going to set up shop there and do things like Intel, which, of course, didn't work. No, Intel did okay. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they set up a whole series of businesses, but that's not what matters. What matters is, is the logical extension of the industrialization of the scientific revolution was, oh, now the engineers, the developers, the technology people, the experimenters are actually in charge. They don't need the business people anymore. Or they don't need them so much. They can be their own CEOs. And so you have companies now all over the world, but primarily in the United States, and primarily, by the way, in Silicon Valley, it's something like one of every three research dollars in the United States is spent in three zip codes between Palo Alto and San Francisco. Which is, a, it's, it, the number is astonishing. Why? Because you have all these technology companies there run by technology people who just want to do research and development. And occasionally they hit it big enough to pay for all of the stuff that they miss on. That is simply the industrial revolution, the scientific revolution, to its logical extent. Who are the most important people? The people who are developing new ideas. What we now call disruptors. And people go, oh, well, this technology, but it's also having social impact. Yes. That's why you didn't get scientific revolutions in any other part of the world at any other time in history. It's because technology and scientific development always has social impacts. And if you live in a society where those can be controlled, it has a tendency to incredibly repress development. If you can control capital flows, which most societies tightly regulated. If you can control education, which most societies tightly regulated. If you can control the markets, which historically speaking, it's hard for us to get our minds around it. But if you think of medieval markets, all this is true in China, it's true all over the world. Market days, market fairs, used to take place often outside of cities because it didn't want those traveling traders inside the city. Or one of my other favorite examples is if you were in like a barrel making trade, you had to wear the clothes of that trade. And if you said, you know what, I can make a better barrel in a different way, and you tried to set up shop someplace in that city you were in, they would beat you to death. And that was legal. It happened all the time. Because, you're, well, if you make a better barrel, you're going to put out all the existing barrel makers. So to protect that and to protect our jobs, oh, we're just going to kill you. This, this perfectly regular, these guild wars were absolutely a regular part of, of merchant cities in the Middle Ages in Europe. The trade wars with China. China basically didn't want to import anything. The opium wars between China and, and England uh, were based on the fact that we were, England was buying everything from China, particularly silks and porcelains, tea, um, and, and China just said, we don't want anything from you. Wool? You have wool? Huh, that's hilarious. We have silk. Right? I mean, that's a bad deal. If you have silk, you don't buy wool. Um, and and they oh, you have cotton. Really great invention. We've got silk. Um, you, know, we, you know, what do you have? You've got nothing. We've got support that everything. And so the one thing that they figured out that they had was opium. And the Chinese said, no, you can't sell opium to us. It's a bad thing. We don't want it. And so they had a war so that England could sell opium to China so that they would get some of their money back. So you know that notion of just closing off trade, restricting trade, and not allowing certain things to trade, limited number of days, limit who can do it, all of that will stop a scientific revolution because it can't have access to capital. All the stuff that Perkins needed. You don't have access to capital. You don't have access to markets. You don't have access to the money to invest in developing a new technology. And so what we've lived with and what we've lived through 
is this fundamental like transformation of the philosophical outlook of the world. We are basically now all empiricists. We really do look to see if something works. And if something works better than something used to work, we are quick to adopt it. Historically, this is just not how people behaved. We've always done it this way. We're, 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 we're never going to do it differently. In fact, even recently, uh, there was a, a war, the Serbian war in Kosovo. A bridge was blown up, um, an ancient bridge. And, and they said, we're, don't worry, we're going to rebuild it. And we're going to make a more beautiful and even more ancient bridge. <laughs> Which I just love that concept, a more beautiful and more ancient bridge. That is the outlook of most of world history. Even when you were doing something new, you pretended like you were doing something the way it had always been done. That's how you snuck it in. So it wasn't new, this is just some slight modification. Um, and, and we're just, we've come to the other side. We're the children of this empirical revolution and outlook. We're, we're really dubious on truth. We almost don't care about truth, we really care about functionality. Is it close enough? Is it reasonably efficient? Is it moderately effective at what we're trying to accomplish, whatever it is? If yes, hey, we're pretty good with it. If no, then now we don't like it, no matter how much justification it has, or how many people argue against it. So think about all the arguments that are made against, for instance, like cell phones. Oh, they're evil, they're bad, they're distracting, they're destroying your life, da, da, da. That's why nobody uses them anymore. <laughs> Right? I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's great. Every argument you can make against it is true, but it doesn't matter because we like it. And it works. Until it doesn't. Or until it comes, something along better comes along. Something better comes along that we like more. We'll just throw the cell phone aside, and a multi-hundred billion dollar industry will go downhill, and some other new industry will rise. And people are working on it right now. Because if you can replace the cell phone, you're going to make a lot of money and be famous. It's going to be great. Because people will go, oh. Because how many people don't even have a landline anymore? Right? Lots of people ditching the landline. There's a hilarious video online. You can see these two young kids. They're about 15. And their dad has an dial, old dial phone in a box. And he says, OK, I'll give you five minutes to dial a number. And they cannot figure it out. Because they can't figure out how the rotary relates to the numbers on the phone, and you're like, wow, we've ditched that technology just like that in a decade or so. We're just done with it. And that, I mean, that was a huge, AT&T was a big, still a big company, but they had to change everything they're doing. Historically speaking, AT&T fight you to the death with soldiers to keep people from taking their market share. Now they fight with more scientists. Phillips, the uh, uh, French super giant technology company for a while was hiring everybody who graduated with an engineering degree related to satellite communications uh, everywhere in the world. Because they had worked out that if they can just monopolize all those people, then they win. And so they did win for a while. But I thought, what a genius idea. Just hire everybody. They were just hiring everybody. That's great. That's brilliant. They just hired so many, and so they had all the engineers, so they had all the patents, and so it turns out they're making a lot of money on that because they're like cornering the market. Genius. Right? But back to Bacon, all the way back to the origins of this. When he was proposing this switch to say, look, your sense perception, carefully checked, repeated, pondered, reflected on within a comprehensible system, is what matters. It was even controversial then, because everybody said, well, if you can judge what's right and wrong, as we've mentioned before, what, what role does a king have? Right? What, how is a king supposed to tell you what's right and wrong? Answer, well, he can't. Unless in your judgment, the king is the best person to tell you who's right and wrong. And it turns out that very few people arrive at that on their own. <laughs> If you haven't been raised being told that the king knows everything that's right and wrong, then you don't go for it. But, by the way, if you've ever read Shakespeare, this is one of the things that just doesn't resonate with us. It's really clear that Shakespeare pretty much felt that how went the monarchy, so went the country. 
that if, if the king was being evil and murdering people, as he is in most of the plays, something rotten in the state of Denmark, Richard III, um, then it's like you had plagues and locusts and famine, and it was like, what? No, it's not true. Lots of stuff goes on. The king or your religious leader is not the end-all, be-all. You have a lot of say. You have a lot of freedom. And that empirical revolution that transfers power to the educated, to the researcher, to companies, to capital, is our world. But this is why we misunderstand the scientific revolution, is because we think of it as sort of um, divorced from the world sometimes, I think. That it's some sort of philosophical institution that's seeking absolute truth and knowledge for all time. And science does claim this occasionally, stupidly. They should not do this because it's, again, if you ever study philosophy, empiricism is the easiest philosophical school to just devastate. You can just take a stick and beat every one of their ideas, no problem. It's easy. But it doesn't matter because they don't care. Because the damn microwave still pops popcorn. And as long as that happens, the empiricists are like, okay, close enough for us. So, so when you think about this, most of our worldview is shaped by the scientific revolution. Again, this, this reliance on individuality, personal experience, empirical testing, repetition, double-checking, self-doubt, distrust of authority figures, all of those elements come from empiricism. And then that empiricism just got incredibly turbocharged because it got the investments of major governments and major business. And so again, today, over a trillion dollars a year directly on R&D, plus all the money spent at universities, particularly in the United States and other countries like us, um, has just transformed our world. And so if you ever look at the stock market, or if you ever have any investments in the market, often you're going, well, what is this company going to do in the future? What new ideas are they going to develop? What new things are going to bleed to the marketplace? That's just the scientific revolution internalized. The belief that all these companies are going to develop something new and amazing next year or the year after. It drives our whole investment structure and is completely anomalous in world history. This was never the idea in world history. Now it is. We all believe it. It's just our philosophical outlook, pretty much, that we don't reflect on. So when you think scientific revolution, really think it is your worldview, by and large. Even if you have other outlooks and stuff, basically we really believe in this industrialized empiricism that shapes our lives and shapes our worldview and brings us the technologies and the revolutions that both upset us and we love. So scientific revolution, thank you very much. Thank you.